everyone, welcome to Maximus Colin Radio Show, episode 16. We have a great episode for you today. We had listeners call in and ask questions as a continuation from our last show about how to avoid those endocrine disrupting chemicals that are in our cookware and finding better cookware solutions. Someone had a great question about uh, finding motivation again uh, once they've achieved some success in their 30s. Uh, and finding what drives them. So we talked about how they can tap into their values and their intrinsic motivation to kind of find a a new source for motivation. Um, We talked about how do you motivate and train a 14 year old uh, to do strength training and and how do you maintain that uh, as they start to develop in terms of their strength. And then finally, we had a great question about how do you sort of manage ADHD and what are some useful frameworks? So we talked about the keystone habit as a very helpful behavioral technique to better self-regulate and avoid sort of getting uh, too far off track in terms of distractions. So for all that and more, uh, tune in for a great show. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Cam and welcome to Maximus Colin Radio Show number 16. Super excited to be with you. It is now spring 2021. And uh, you know, with the new season comes renewal, rebirth, It's a new year in a lot of cultures, and it's a great opportunity for each and every one of us to recommit to our health and take it as an opportunity, just like the beginning of the the new year in January, to work on our health goals. And so happy to talk through any questions, concerns, or or coach anyone through uh, anything health-related today. So we have a follow-up from last week from Diego from Discord. It's actually about the PFAS chemicals that we're talking about, the endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, Do you have any advice or recommendation for cookware? I heard some types of metal also accumulate in the body and are toxic as well. Yeah, it's a great uh, question. So last week we were talking about PFASs, these endocrine disrupting chemicals that are commonly found um, in all kinds of products. Um, including cosmetics, cookware, clothing, carpeting, uh, etc. But uh, I do think it is particularly important to um, be aware of your cookware because um, there's increased volatility, essentially, of chemicals whenever anything is heated or superheated to a high degree. Um, And so this is actually particularly why refined seed oils are, are very pernicious, which is unfortunately kind of the standard cooking oil. Um, that's used, uh, basically any restaurant that you go to, they're using refined seed oil. So most common of which of course is canola oil, peanut oil, and soybean oil, um, because they're quite frankly dirt cheap. Um, and that's why restaurants, uh, use it because if they're heavily frying stuff, they're going through gallons of this, um, and they're not using the good stuff, which are, in my opinion is animal fats, um, which are much higher in saturated fats while these refined seed oils are much higher in, uh, unsaturated fats and they're much more volatile. So when you heat them up in a frying pan, um, especially you burn them, um, reuse them or uh, exceed essentially their smoke point, um, which is why they burn, uh, they change chemically and into uh, unwanted substances. So um, uh, that's all the more reason before we even get to the cookware to, to be very picky about what you're putting in your cookware. So I'm a big fan of using uh, animal fats, um, so ghee is a good example, or clarified butter, which is basically butter in which the milk solids have been skimmed off. And so it becomes more of a creamy uh, kind of texture. It can be liquid, in fact, kind of like coconut oil um, if it's warm enough. But the nice thing is the smoke point of butter 
which is in the 300s, goes to about 400s um, when it's clarified butter. So it's better for a higher heat cooking. Um, and also has a nice buttery uh, taste. So if you're familiar with kind of like buttered popcorn, that that's kind of the the taste and, and texture that it kind of has. Um, otherwise, uh, tallow or lard, which comes from beef or pork, is a really great choice to use in your cookware. Um, and alternatively, uh, avocado oil, which is not a seed oil. It doesn't come from the seed of the avocado. It actually comes from the fruit of the avocado. Um, just like olive oil is also a fruit oil. Um, so olive oil and avocado oil, the two exceptions that I think are appropriate for cooking. Olive oil, though, you can't heat too high. It has a lower smoke point in the lower 300s. It's better for drizzling. So I, I recommend people, you know, put it on their salads as salad dressing. Um, but only only use it for cooking if you're using it for low heat cooking. Avocado oil, on the other hand, can be heated to about 500 degrees, much higher smoke point. Um, so it's much safer to use in cookware. As for the cookware itself, the main thing that you want to avoid is Teflon or any non-stick coating that people are using in their cookware because the coatings themselves are chemical in nature. Uh, they don't last very long. They chip um, and they can be easily removed and you end up consuming it. So um, uh, these PFASs in particular, uh, I think Teflon is actually a type of PFAS, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so you really want to avoid um, that. So the other thing I would watch out for is it's not just your pat, uh, 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 pots and pans, but um, there's a lot of uh, kitchen gadgets nowadays. Like the one that's particularly popular now is the air fryer, which people love. But you should look at um, what's uh, used in the coating of the air fryer. Most air fryers use a nonstick coating, which is Teflon or a Teflon-like substance. Uh, and it runs into that same problem with PFASs. So um, be very, very picky when you buy your stuff and check. You can always check, for instance, if you're buying on Amazon. Go to the frequently asked questions or the questions section. And you can search for what's the coating or nonstick. And if it has it, I would avoid it. You want to use something, uh, pick stuff that's stainless steel and is not coated. Stainless steel is naturally relatively non-stick if you're not uh, heavily using a lot of oils at high temperatures. And so um, it's a much better choice. Another example are like milk frothers are very popular for people who are making coffee on a regular basis. I just bought one. I just made sure it's uh, stainless steel non-stick. So that's what you want to buy. Um, there are some newer coatings which are ceramic. Uh, so ceramic cookware can be good. Um, the only thing you have to make sure is it's like a high quality brand, uh, it's legitimate ceramic. Um, and again, it doesn't sort of chip. Um, the ideal is, uh, something that's, uh, not just a ceramic coated, but it's made, uh, it's bonded or it's like, uh, ceramic itself. Those are kind of better, but they're more expensive. Otherwise the, the cookware that I generally recommend if you're talking about, a uh, pan is to just use cast iron. Uh, cast iron is great because it's literally exactly what it's made. It was, sounds like it's iron. Um, some of the iron does rub off into your food, but iron is a nutrient, essentially. Um, guys want to be careful about consuming too much iron. Women actually can benefit more because they lose it, um, obviously, through their menstruation on a regular basis. Um, but uh, iron is, is generally not toxic in the doses that you're getting through pans. Um, and as long as you care for it and season it, um, you're not getting extra chemicals. So uh, ironically, you know, uh, cast iron cookware has been used by your parents and grandparents and many generations back and is still probably the best choice for most people. Um, if you do care about the weight, they are very heavy. And so sometimes they can be unwieldy, particularly if you have other people in your family that are using it. Well, I would say as a guy, it's good exercise for your hands and wrists 
So use, use cast iron and consider it exercise when you cook. Um, but there are thinner varieties that they sell. They're definitely like 10 X the cost. Um, but they're, they're a little lighter and, um, uh, just sand it a little bit more fine and uh, easier to be nonstick. So th there is essentially high-end uh, cast iron cookware as well um, if you want to go there. But uh, quite honestly, like Lodge, which is an American brand, I think you can find it on Amazon and basically anywhere that sells home goods. You can get a solid um, cast iron pan for $10 to $20. Uh, and it'll literally last you a lifetime if you take care of it. So uh, big fan of cast iron. I think it's what most people should use. Otherwise, uh, try to use ceramic uh, like La Crusette is a good brand uh, that's in the ceramic space or use just plain stainless steel um, that doesn't have a nonstick coating. All, all of those are good choices because whether it's steel, it's iron or ceramic, it, it, it is what it is. There's no special coatings that are on it um, and there's not as much concern about the toxicity. So uh, I think it's a great question, especially if it's going to be something that you can be using to cook and eat out of on a regular basis. It's worth investing the money in buying quality stuff that's not going to, you know, add to any unnecessary toxic load over time. So I guess the reason for asking the question is looking back at my younger self, going back 10 years ago, um, I felt that I had a lot more motivation. I don't know whether the, that, that correlates to just being younger and more naive and mm -hmm. afraid, of, not afraid of taking risks and that kind of thing. Or if it was because I was more insecure um, around mm -hmm. financially. Mm -hmm. um, or um, if, you know, I, mean, I was possibly younger and healthier um, or even, um, you know, because I've been 10 years in the sort of consulting game, uh -huh. whether I've just, it's corporate burnout, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder looking back whether I was possibly more narcissistic. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word because mm -hmm. I don't think I was narcissistic necessarily, but um, I was definitely more, I was definitely playing the status game, you know. I, you know, mm -hmm. didn't have a stable relationship and that kind of thing, and now I have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe I haven't got those drives as I once were. So I'm just really keen to get your thoughts and your perspectives on that. Yeah, it's a great question about you know motivation. How do you get the motivation back? So I'm, uh, and I'm glad that you're calling in because it's, it's much easier to address this when I can kind of go back and forth with you. So if you don't mind my asking, how old are you now? Because I'm curious what what was going on ten years ago. Just turned thirty. Okay, so you're 20 when you kind of felt the peak of your motivation. So were you in college at the time? What was kind of going on at that that moment in time in your life when you felt your motivation was better? Um, yeah, so I was I was I was in I was just finished I finished up college. Okay. Um, I was at a decision in my life whether to go down the university path or or go off on my own. I ended up going off on my own as a freelance web designer um, at the time. So I was working for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then shortly after, so around the, the 20, 21 mark, I, I, I got the job at a, at a creative agency, mm -hmm. advertising agency. Um, yeah, so I was I just transitioning from working freelance into, uh, you know, um, the other side. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm curious, at that moment of time when you said your motivation was higher, what was your motivation at the time? Like, what were the driving factors when you were 20 that... Uh, you know, motivated you to get up every day and, and work hard at that, that new gig that you got? I think, as I said, I think it was a sense of, I come from sort of a working class background mm -hmm. um, and I had more money insecurities. Yeah. Um, so it was always this case of, you know, and I see my dad work hard and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, 
and I, I, always, I never wanted to sort of be in his shoes in 50 years time, you know? Um, yeah. So it was kind of a bit of that, I think. Um, and just a drive to, you know, being inspired by a time where, you know, the inter- internet was erupting um, mm-hmm. and seeing all these dot-com um, millionaires coming out of all that and being sort of more driven in that in that sense, yeah. um, being inspired by those. Um, I guess that's where it came from. And that's where around the time, you know, I... As learn to code and learn to learn graphic design and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do those areas. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I do think sometimes, um, you know, depending on our um, circumstances growing up, family situation, uh, uh, whether it's to, to gain something that we didn't have or to not lose something that we did have, those can be big driving factors and motivators. Um, and then, yeah, it, obviously, uh, if you're kind of uh, around at a very exciting time and you want to sort of catch the trend, that can be a big factor as well. So it kind of makes sense what was what was driving you at the time. I'm curious if if, if that has changed. Like for instance, um, have you have you achieved the level of success where like money money isn't like uh, a huge scarcity uh, point? And so um, is is that kind of contributing to it, or are you not as excited about sort of the the trends that are going on like like there was at the you know dot com boom? Um, so I'm just curious what your mindset is now that's different than 10 years ago yeah to a certain degree i think um it's part maybe a bit of both i think that um you know i've spent 10 plus years you know as a web designer developer you know consulting and you've kind of, I've kind of hit i've kind of been burnt out by that corporate um you know culture to some degree mm-hmm. um but also, yeah, I've also gained more financial securities in that sense as well. I'm not, I mean, not, I'm not super comfortable. There's still, sure. you know, room to improve. But um, I've hit a level where I'm definitely a lot more comfortable, you know, in that sense as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is so, actually like a, a, so first of all, I just want to normalize like what you're feeling. I, I don't think it's rare um, in, in, in any stretch of the imagination, right? Uh, oftentimes hunger, literally, uh, and metaphorically can be a huge motivator for people. Like, especially, you know, when you're starting out, coming right out of university, um, unless you're very blessed in terms of your your parents giving you a lot, you, you kind of have to, you know, go out and fend for yourself as a man. Um, and I, I think that can be a, a very uh, motivating cause because if you don't, then, you know, you're going to be in dire constraints. And I, I think a lot of guys like you, even if they become even, let's say, middle class, um, but you know, they're not going to be homeless. They're not going to go hungry. They're, they're not wanting, they've, they've built up a decent amount of savings, uh, or they're skilled enough that, you know, they, they're not afraid that they can be able to find work uh, after a decade of it. Um, yeah, that, that sort of fear and hunger does go away. Um, and that can be a little bit, um, demotivating in the sense that quite frankly, you become comfortable, right? This is the classic, uh, you know, survivor song and I, I have the tiger. He says, um, you know, so many times it happens so fast, you, 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 you trade your passion for glory. Um, and you know, the hunger that kind of what, uh, you know, originally motivates people, especially to pursue sort of athletic or professional greatness, uh, disappears when people become more and more successful. So that's the bad news. And, it, and it's kind of hard, quite frankly, to get that back because unless you go back to dire straits, which I wouldn't really wish or recommend upon anyone, um, you know, you're not going to go back to being 20 and, and being as hungry in the same way. But here's here's the good news. So that is a very extrinsic motivator, right? Which is like, look, I need money to feed myself. Uh, I need money to establish myself. 
uh, and kind of make my way in the world. And, you know, fortunately, you've gotten to a point where, um, you know, that's not the major factor. But the, I actually think that's a, that's a blessing and an opportunity in that you kind of move towards things that are a little bit more intrinsically motivated or as, as we talk about in ACT, a little bit more values aligned. So I guess my question to you uh, on, that, on that kind of path is, okay, uh, I, I'm sure you still have some financial goals in terms of wanting to get to the next level, have even greater security, you know, whether it's purchase property, provide for your family, et cetera. So it, it continues to be a, a motivator, but it's certainly not the same level of hunger as before. So I guess my question to you is what, what, um, what are you looking forward to, right? Like if now if you look forward to the next 10 years, right? So from 30 to 40, um, what do you want in your life? Like you could almost envision it um, and look at yourself in 40 and almost imagine that we're having the same conversation a decade from now. And, I, and you almost call him back and you're very proud and you're like, hey, Dr. Cam, remember that conversation that we had a decade ago? Here's all the things that I've done since. Here's the person that I am and I've developed and grown into. What, what kind of person would you be at 40 and what, what would you have in your life? Yeah, it's the question I keep asking myself as well. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a hard one, you know. But I think ultimately things I've learned is that, you know, um, definitely would like to be in a leadership position in terms mm -hmm. of leading and helping people um, and, and being more aligned in that sense. Um, and then also obviously is the financial aspect and making mm -hmm. sure that, you know, you're comfy there, you can provide for your family, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you potentially got kids by then, um, right? And that kind of thing. Um, so and it's you, probably you mentioned in a, you're, in a, you're in a relationship now as well, which is different. Yeah, so I've been in a stable relationship for the last, you know, five years. Um, so yeah, that's part of it. And I think there's always this sort of nagging feelings that you know it's a short life and you want to make an impression here mm -hmm. while you're here, right? Um, so there's always that sort of driving away in the background, in, in that the sense of you know want to leave a mark while you're here mm -hmm. so whether that's in the form of you know writing a book or you know starting a company or you know doing something like you're doing mm -hmm. um something along those lines yeah what kind of mark would you want to leave because I, I i like where you're going with that right um but but how maybe try to get a little bit more concrete with me like how if if i ask your friends or your colleagues 10 years from now and and we're almost like imagine we're at like a a celebratory banquet or an awards banquet with, and, and they were getting up and talking about you, what would they ideally say? Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I think I tend to look at like who I'm inspired by. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and, and definitely over the last, you know, couple of years, it's people like yourself and it's people, you know, people like your Joe Wogans and mm -hmm. people like your Jordan Petersons and that kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I think I look at how can I, I can apply my, skill set that I've acquired over the years, it's probably um, something along those lines in regards to maybe it's just, it is, you know, writing a book or something and people, you know, or teaching, you know, teaching others around product design or, you know, or web development or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I know this is kind of a fluffy accent because I'm trying, it's kind of that slow thing, fast thing thing, right? Sure, sure. Um, um, so yeah, maybe it's it's around around those lines. Like I, 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 this is probably part of the struggle. I struggle to give you a definite answer mm -hmm. on these things, you know. Um, 
Well, I, I think there, it's worth exploring, and, and I don't expect you to come up with uh, all, all the yeah. answers on the spot. But, but I am hearing some things in the conversation that you're putting out. So first of all, it, it does um, sound like um, there's some aspect around helping people um, or educating people that appeals to you, right? So whether that's um, in terms of sharing your skill set. Uh, so are you, are you a product designer, graphic designer? Tell me, tell me a little bit more about what you actually do. Yeah, consultant product designer. Okay, excellent. And and obviously you you know built up uh, close to a decade of experience there. So so maybe there's something around there which is like you know maybe the last decade of your life was was very focused on individual skill development, right? Like becoming a really great uh, product designer, product design consultant, um, and and you know especially you also managed um, mentioned kind of going into a leadership role. I think a lot of people talk about leadership like it's it's like a the natural or inevitable thing to do. I think some people, quite frankly, are meant for leadership and some people are not. And there's no shame in how much leadership that you do. Uh, I think everyone, quite frankly, can be the leader of themselves um, and potentially the leader of a family. Some people are meant to be the leaders of a giant multinational corporation and not everyone is, is cut out for that. And that's totally fine. It's, it's quite frankly, a, a lonely and shitty job in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah. but I do think leadership can be expressed in many ways and, and maybe being a leader in the product design community, right? Which is your expertise can, can, uh, be that form of leadership for you. It, it could be in terms of like being a guru. It could be in terms of writing a book or it could be simpler than that. It could be, for instance, becoming, um, you know, a product design, uh, leader or manager at a company, um, running a small team and being a phenomenal, mentor, trainer, uh, and manager to a handful of folks and kind of like young up and coming product designers and, and teaching them how to be excellent. And I bet you'd in fact get a lot of satisfaction out of something like that. If kind of the mentorship is in your heart and that's something that really kind of appeals to you. So, um, I think you're kind of, uh, probably getting, uh, understanding where I'm getting at in terms of, I don't think it's the thing itself that you need to find in terms of what the expression is, uh, if it's running a small team, if it's writing a book, those are the goals, right? I think what's more important for you is to ascertain what your values are, right? When you're clear about what your values are, the goals naturally um, come out or emanate out of that, right? So what I would encourage you to explore, and we're starting to obviously explore it together on this call, is... What are the things that are really important to me? What do I want to stand for, right? 10 years from now, and in terms of the rest of my life, what do I, and that's why these questions are useful prompts. Like, what do I want other people to say about me, right? It's not just, oh, he was a leader, but what kind of leader were you, right? Like, if you were imagining running a team of product designers, like, what would they say about you, right? In terms of like, oh, is he a good teacher? Uh, he genuinely cares about my well-being, um, he's at the top of the field in terms of knowing the latest techniques. Like what are the elements that people would be, you know, uh, respect you for? And I think those highlight essentially what your values are. It could be around innovation, for instance, if it's being the best or the top of the field, it could be around, um, you know, contribution or service, right. In terms of wanting to train the next generation. Um, it could be around, um, kind of artistic expression, right? Which is like the thing, maybe it's the design itself that you really love and uh, having an outlet for creativity and expression, being able to share that with other people. 
right? I don't know what it is, uh, for instance, in those three examples that motivates you to be in product design in the first place. But I, I would encourage you to think about that and, and almost like really hone and refine what your values are, right? Because I think if you're very clear about what your values are, you can find many different ways of expressing that value. Um, and that's the nice thing about values is as opposed to a goal, which is I need to write a book. And if I don't write the book, I don't feel satisfied. If I write the book, then I don't know, hopefully I feel satisfied and maybe you don't after you write it. Uh, a value can be lived uh, and are expressed in any given moment, right? So let's take a concrete example of that. If you decide uh, service is the thing that really like is your value, like I want to I wanna give back uh, and I want to train other people, you can find many ways of serving people. Like right now, it could just be, you know, uh, uh, finding someone to mentor, right? Who wants to become a product designer and you spend an hour a week with them, uh, just teaching them tools of the trade or giving them advice about how to find a job or all that kinds of stuff. And that could be something you can do literally right now, right? In any given moment or in your existing product design consulting position, figuring out how can I leverage sort of service or mentorship as part of what I do. And obviously there may be an opportunity to do that in a much more lofty way, which is, I don't know, maybe you could start a product design community where you could write a book, you could become a leader in one, five, 10 years from now. But either way, whether it's literally something that you're doing now, today, or you're doing 10 years from now, the goals can vary, but the, but it's always done out of the expression of that value. And so whenever I hear people say, coming back to your original question, I don't know what sort of my motivation, motivation. is. Uh, the question is, how can you find what your values are? Because your values are essentially the roadmap, the blueprint, the compass for where you want to head in life. And they should really be more intrinsically motivated. Um, that's why money is not a value. Money is a goal, right? But it's like, well, what would you do with that money and the expression of your values? Um, that's going to be really, uh, that's going to express that in a, in, in a way that's very authentic and resonant to you. So is that is that helpful as like a way of thinking about it that may be a little bit different than how you've been approaching it? Yeah, no, that's super helpful. It's very very helpful. I th yeah, definitely something I need. I know I need to explore further. Yeah. Um, the other part of it too. Really um, to so I, I realize it's very lofty. I'm telling you, okay, you got to like uh, uh, get clarity about what your values are. That's that's the concrete recommendation mm -hmm. that I have for you. Really think about it, refine it. Um, and, and, and like I said, uh, maybe even, um, come up with a statement is what I would, I would suggest. It could be a couple bullet points, could be a paragraph, but think about, like I said, who do I want to be less than what do I want to do? If you know who you want to be, the, what you will want to do will naturally come as an outgrowth to that. Right. But have a very clear, almost like vision statement, personal statement, mission statement of who do I want to be? Uh, as a person, as a professional, like it could be a little bit more personal. We've been talking a lot of, more about the professional side of things as a product design consultant, but I would encourage you to think about the personal side as well, right? And that could be, for instance, you mentioned you're in a stable relationship for five years. Um, part of your motivation for wanting more money is to be able to provide for maybe a future family um, if you obviously continue this relationship and start one. That's totally fine too. That's a good goal, right? I wanna make money for a future family, but the value behind that would be well, I want to be a loving partner. I want to be a good father. Um, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of person do you want to be? Right. And then the goals will come out of that. So, so maybe write that out a little bit and, and be clear, use some, some nice, like vivid adjectives. And so you have like a vivid, almost like paint a picture for yourself about 
who's the person that I want to be, like I said, from your 30s to your 40s. Um, and, and I think that will provide you with both motivation, which you might have almost like, um, I think you still have it. I think you've almost like lost contact with it. Right. The, the, the nice thing about, you know, um, the, about being hungry, literally, right. You're like, you're 20. You're like, I gotta go make myself in the world. It's, it's very black or white. Like if you don't go get a job and put some, you know, literally, you know, food on the table, uh, you know, you feel the consequences very quickly. And so the motivation yeah. is like right in your face. But when you're kind of like moderately successful, you know, you're not as hungry, you're in a stable relationship, you're kind of almost like entering this 30s, not quite midlife, but kind of that that somewhere quarter life to midlife kind of range. Um, and the consequences of not being motivated are not as dire, quite frankly, right? And so that's why I think you got to shift to this more intrinsic values oriented motivation that is that is uh, a little bit, um, like I said, you're not going to starve whether you do it or not. But I actually think it's much stronger than these kind of extrinsic motivators about whether you're going to, you know, uh, make money or, 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 or not be able to feed yourself. Um, because if, if you th I, the people that I know, quite frankly, that the most motivated, they're people who often have made their money, right? They've, they've, like, they've almost taken the extrinsic out of the table. They've achieved all the success that they want, but they're, they're still kind of young. They're not at retirement age. And they're like, what the hell do I do for the next 30 years? Right. And it's like, I don't, money doesn't have to be it. So what do I do? That's when they become very intrinsically motivated. And they're like, what is my contribution to whether it's my family, my society, my community, my professional community, whatever it is. Uh, and then they, they actually work harder, but it's not for the money. It's for these other reasons. And in a lot of ways, it, they, they shift their mindset from this is something I have to do. This is something I must do. This is something I should do. Right. Which are not these are like very external, extrinsic kind of things to this is something I want to do. And it is my choice because I could be sitting on a beach and retired, but I, I, I don't I wouldn't feel satisfied doing that. I feel too young. I feel like I'm I'm letting my strengths and talents and God given gifts go to waste if I do that. So that's why I'm saying I, I think it's great that you use extrinsic motivation to get to where you are from your 20s to your 30s. Now take intrinsic motivation to get to from where you are in your 30s to where who you want to be in your 40s. And I think that'll be a very positive driving force. Yeah, sounds really good. I think that there's really, really good advice. And I think part of the problem is that paradox of choice. You know, you get to a point mm -hmm. where you've got many paths you think you can go down now. And, you you know, whereas back in your 20s, you can it's kind of just grab what you can. Um, I think that's part of it as well. So having those values and understanding those will help, you know, focus that decision. Absolutely. One last point, which is, you know, we talked in a very like lofty theoretical way. I do think it's important because I, I do think values uh, are the major motivator in life. But let's get really, really practical too. How long have you been in your current position? In my current position, yeah. um, though it's two years roughly. Okay. And I, I, I got a little bit of a sense, you correct me if I'm wrong, that there's, there's a little bit of staleness. Like, do you feel challenged in your current position? Yeah. No, no, I think that is part of it. Yeah. 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 I, I got that sense as well. So maybe a little bit, this is a little bit more like very concrete, very practical part is um, I, 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 I hear your story very often, especially when people kind of enter mid career, they get quite frankly, very good at what they're doing, right? They're like, I've been doing this for five, 10 years now. I'm, I'm competent at what I'm doing. People, in fact, hire me as a consultant to do what I'm doing because I'm good enough to to do it freelance or teach other people how to do it. 
Um, but that the downside of that is, you know, uh, the, the natural enjoyment that comes from learning a skill and trap and craft becomes like, oh, I've been doing, I've done this so many times. It's like copy, paste, rinse and repeat. So yeah. it sounds like to me, you gotta, you gotta find something and it doesn't mean you need to quit your job tomorrow, but like, I, I, I think part of your satisfaction will come from a bigger challenge, right? So you got to figure out how to stretch yourself. And I think, by the way, this is such generally good advice for men. Men are most satisfied when they're challenged. Um, and you should you should kind of like force yourself to get outside of your comfort zone. It's so funny because as guys, we spend so much of our early lives just trying to, um, you know, get to some point of stability, right? Um, and, and it's like, the, you don't, you're not thinking about challenge because life is already challenging enough being a man in your 20s and just trying to find your way in life. Fortunately, when you got to get to the point that you are in, um, you know, you overcome some of those challenges and you're like, great, I should be satisfied. And you find yourself in a very exactly the position that you're in now. And you're like, wait a minute, I, I kind of got what I wanted, but somehow I'm not as happy or satisfied as I thought I would be. And it's not because, uh, you know, m money or success isn't satisfying. It's that great, you've achieved that, but you still need challenge in your life because, you know, that's how that's how we, we learn and grow. So I, I would say maybe figure out if there's new skills that you want to learn that you haven't learned. Uh, and maybe that's the part that's going to be challenging. It could be new responsibilities, which is if you're kind of working a little bit more as a consultant, which is generally more solo, maybe it's um, doing a little bit more management if you like doing that or you like to learn how to do that. Um, or third, it could be a little bit more of this community contribution, right? Which is how can I contribute to the broad product design community at large, whether that's writing, speaking, blogging, social media, et cetera, to kind of become a thought leader, right, in the space. And yeah. that could be another challenge. You could stay, in fact, in your same job, but you could say, I'm going to find my challenge and kind of building my brand around product design, building a community around it, whatever it is that, that satisfies you. But I think you got to find something that, that challenges you a little bit more than what you are now. And you always want to find that kind of sweet spot. I, I might have mentioned this in a previous show. Um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the guy who um, popularized the concept of flow, talked about flow really comes from when your skills meet the challenge level, right? It has to be commensurate to it. The problem is as we get better and better, you have to make it more and more challenging. Otherwise, you get bored and you don't grow. And the optimal zone of growth is something that's just slightly past your capabilities currently so that you always have to stretch just a little bit and continually grow. This is exactly the principle of progressive overload and strength training. You want to always want to lift a little bit more than you did last week because that's how your muscles grow. And our mind is quite frankly the same way. So think about that too a little bit in terms of your current position or potentially extracurricular things that you can do above and beyond your position to feel a little bit more challenged and stretch yourself. Um, and I, I, I bet you that if you do, some of that motivation that you felt at 20 will come back. Yeah, that's really practical advice. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Really, really great Thanks, question and really enjoy the dialogue too. Um, cause it's just, it, it's, this is stuff that you got to talk through. So, um, and please yeah. do me a favor, um, as you kind of grow and explore, you know, these questions, feel free to call back at a later show. I'd love to get an update in terms of how it's going. That's a great, yeah. Appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Cam. My loving, pleasure. Loving, loving the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, appreciate Thanks the kind words. Okay. All right. We had this question submitted from Twitter. Hi, uh, my almost 14 year old stepson who is very mildly overweight recently has taken a serious interest in his own fitness and physique. I've gotten him in the weight room 
drilling him on proper form with all the essential lifts, taking care to not let him go heavy and avoid excess forced reps. He's loving it and slowly seeing results. Do you have any extra suggestions on how I can safely maximize his learning, positive experience, and results? Yeah, great question. First of all, I just want to say how, how uh, awesome it is that you're teaching your 14-year-old son how to lift weights. I mean, I think if there's any sort of like key skills, um, very practical um, you know, habits that you're going to teach a 14-year-old boy, uh, strength training in particular, I think is foundational to a healthy and happy life. And it's also great to kind of almost role model that, you know, I was telling Victor, you know, the other day, I, I'm not sure my dad sort of taught me how to lift weights, but, but we had weightlifting equipment. I would always see him weight lift weights growing up. And so almost by osmosis, I just got that as like, oh, this is a thing that you do as a guy. Um, and it's obviously healthy and, and it's a great thing to do. So, um, I think you're doing all the right things, um, from a physiological point of view. So first of all, just to dispel some common myths about weightlifting, there's this, there's a very common concern that people have that if they get um, uh, adolescents or children to lift weights or do strength training, it's going to stunt their growth. There's no good research that at least I'm aware of that shows that weightlifting stunts growth. Um, I think this is like this, this notion that if you're like kind of compact and you build muscles, you almost look like you have small stature, and, and maybe it's because of gymnastics and other things that quite frankly self-select for small people because they, they just do better when you're petite. Um, it doesn't, doesn't shrink you or inhibit your growth as long as you're doing it in like reasonable amounts. Um, so I don't think you need to worry about that. Um, so first of all, that, that's the first thing I would say is, is don't necessarily hold back because you think it's going to stunt their growth in terms of going heavy. Now, obviously, I do think it's generally um, helpful to kind of keep it at a little bit more of a moderate weight. Just because I actually think it's true for adults as well. Like powerlifting is uh, not a great sport for injury prevention. If you're always trying to max out on your PRs, you know, muscle tendons and, and joints are, are in a more vulnerable position. So I, I think it's just a general useful principle for everyone. So uh, I think that's that's first and foremost. Second of all, 14 is actually like, it's not, he's not a kid anymore, right? 14, you're a freshman in high school. Um, a lot of people at 14 are competing in... Um, organized competitive sports, uh, particularly if they're on a, on a, on a high level. Um, and don't forget, there's a lot of like 14 to 16 year olds who are Olympians who, um, quite frankly, perform at very, very high levels. So I think in a lot of ways, we almost hold back too much um, from kids in that they can actually handle, if they can handle the psychological part of it, physically, they can actually do a lot. Um, and so I don't think we necessarily need to hold back a lot as long as you're doing it safely, but it sounds like, you know, you're talking about teaching him good form, uh, keeping the weight reasonable. Um, and he sounds like he's loving it, which I really appreciate that you mentioned that as well. So, um, you know, I don't think you necessarily need, need to hold back. Um, and a lot of people, especially 14 to 18, they enter strength training programs, usually through high school football, um, and they can make a lot of great progress there. So, um, I would say, yeah, don't, don't necessarily un unnecessarily hold unnecessarily hold back. Just be kind of aware, obviously, of like, uh, you know, uh, and, and he's just sort of like injury, overtraining, all that good stuff. Um, and he may be good to go. So what I would say, um, uh, my, my biggest piece of advice on this beyond the sort of the physical or physiological side is really addressing the psychological aspect of it because it's, it's underappreciated and uh, talked about less in that um, there's a, there's a very delicate balance in that. I think fathers in particular, um, need to push 
uh, boys and, and sons. There's a great um, Steve Harvey clip, by the way, about this. This uh, mom was asking Steve Harvey a question about, um, you know, her husband or the dad being a little too much of a disciplinarian. And, you know, he, she was asking Steve for advice. And Steve was like, no, like, look, uh, you know what happens to undisciplined boys? They become undisciplined men and undisciplined men end up either in a grave, in a hospital or in jail. So he was saying like, boys really need discipline. They need structure. And obviously look to a reasonable degree, but um, uh, I think it's an important thing to, to not necessarily hold back um, on pushing. Um, now, the thing that you need to calibrate on the psychological side is their response to your pushing, right? Now, some kids, whether it's just intrinsic or maybe they like the thing, uh, they will resent it, right? Like there's so many stories of people who uh, their kids, um, their parents made them learn music or instruments and they just hated it, right? And they'd go to all the rehearsals and they'd do it because they were kind of forced to, but it didn't obviously stick to them long-term. As soon as they didn't have to do it, they didn't do it and it didn't become a lifelong habit. So if you're pushing them so hard that they're starting to psychologically resent it, uh, they see it as a chore, uh, they see it as sort of a burden. That's where I think you want to kind of, uh, you know, uh, pull back a little bit, roll with the resistance um, and be very mindful. <clears throat> On the other hand, sometimes you get kids that are super motivated and they're like, I want to, you know, there's so many stories of especially like the people who become professional athletes. They know they want to be an NBA player at like 11, 12. They've they known from a very long time. And so those parents obviously very much encourage them. And so that's what I would say is almost use their enthusiasm, their passion as the calibration for how much you want to push. I think there is a reasonable baseline level. Like, yes, you probably want to get them to go lift weights. Thank you on a regular basis. Um, and maybe that's one, two, three times a week at most to a moderate degree of exertion if it's not really their thing. But you, you learn, okay, this is just a healthy habit and you're going to do it for the rest of your life, even if you're not going to be an athlete and just leave it at that. If they particularly take to it and they're like, oh, I, I love strength training. I have a passion for it. You know, maybe you can get them uh, a little bit of extra coaching. That could be a great thing um, if they want to learn like particular things like Olympic lifting, power lifting, uh, or more advanced techniques. It might be great to set them up with a coach. Um, if they do want to compete, um, they can obviously put them in a program where they can do that. Um, or they can use it as a base or a foundation to doing sports. So maybe they, their passion is around, uh, I don't know, like basketball and they're using sort of uh, strength training to increase their vertical leap. And that's their motivation for doing it. So find find what it is that drives them um, and, and, and push them towards that. Because um, I think that's going to be the critical thing. But look, I would say you, from what you're describing, it sounds like you're doing everything uh, right. Uh, I actually think more often than not, we don't push uh, particularly boys enough um, rather than pushing them too much. Uh, I think that was different back in the day, but I think we've quite frankly gone a little bit soft um, and we're so concerned and like we, we do everything with white gloves these days. So I would say um, uh, I'm more concerned about underdoing it for most people than overdoing it. Um, but like I said, you be, be aware of their emotional well-being um, and their their passion. Because, you know, we had this whole conversation with the previous caller about motivation. Kids' motivation waxes and wanes much faster than adults, right? They can be super enthusiastic. One bad thing happens and they're like, I hate it. I quit. I see this all the time with sports, music, whatever programs that they're involved with. Because, you know, you're 14. You got you know, all these hormones. You're like, uh, you got the whole adolescent angst thing going on. Um, and so you do want to you want to pay attention to that um, and just be kind of attuned to their emotional needs. So uh, I would say as long as they're still enjoying it, 
and you're not going to ruin, ruin their, their love of the activity, um, feel free to, to push them along uh, as is reasonable. I got a comment, by the way, from Instagram. Uh, Dave said, uh, my dad pushing me motivated me more than anything. I miss it. So there you go. That's another, another uh, good case study for uh, why, we should, why we should push. Hey, Dr. Cam, I have a quick question. I saw a, a thread earlier, I think it was the other day. Um, you were talking about how people like, you know, whether it's autism or ADHD or ADD, like overcoming barriers that are, you know, predisposed, like coming up with frameworks and stuff like that. Could you t like unpack that and talk about that more? Yeah, so I, I did have two threads on autism and ADHD. Um, maybe it'd be helpful if you if you're like tell me what you're interested in in particular like is this something that uh, you're you're dealing with or, or or you've seen other people deal with or help me help me help you oh definitely um so i i do have like adhd and that kind of like spoke to me a little bit mm -hmm. um i've had a problem in the past where i'm like very engaging and very social so like i don't have any social yeah. problems i'm actually very socially aware but sometimes like it's hard to follow through a little bit, but I've done a lot better by implying frameworks and really focusing on first principles, like, you know, thinking like, you know, thinking about the question rather than the solution mm -hmm. or like, you know, the problem rather than the solution. But um, sometimes I still come across it. Sometimes I think the big problem is I always want to like my eye, it's kind of like the, the grocery store thing where you want to, you know, your eyes are wider than your stomach type yeah. of thing. So um, yeah, so that's like, I, I like always want to do a lot, but then sometimes you just got to focus. So that I, that's where I'm at. But um, I would love to, you know, get your um, perspective on it. Yeah. So it's a great question. And just for people who didn't see the Twitter threads, just to give a little background, I was saying, you know, the, the biggest challenge with, with people in the autism spectrum, by the way, both of these things are spectrums, all, as are all psychological conditions. And that I think it's important not to pathologize too much um, in the sense that like we're probably all of us somewhere on on all of these spectrums, whether it's autism, ADHD, depression, anxiety, uh, or, uh, or especially if you talk about sort of inattentiveness instead of um, um, uh, ADHD, or you talk about sort of an, an, an empathic impairment versus autism. Um, if you're using those words, we're definitely all of us somewhere on the spectrum. Um, and I almost feel like everyone looks ADHD these days, given how much social media and um, internet use everyone's overusing that have made everyone quite frankly, inattentive and hard to focus. So um, uh, you're certainly not alone. I think the difference though, is that in, in au an autism or an empathic deficit, there is sort of a social impairment. In ADHD, as I was saying, there isn't that much of that social impairment. And in fact, a lot of times like people I was saying with ADHD are very fun. They're very exciting to date. Uh, uh, they're very enthusiastic, very open to new experiences. Um, but when you kind of enter a long-term relationship with folks, who are ADHD can be very challenging because they're not typically very conscientious. They don't follow through as you were kind of talking about. Uh, and, and a lot of things get misinterpreted. Like if they fail to remember birthdays and anniversaries and things like that, they're like, oh, well, you don't really love me. And it's like, no, I just literally forgot. It's not from a lack of caring. It's a lack of, you know, just working memory, quite frankly. Um, but I, I think honestly, so that's what I would say in the context of relationship, there's actually some really great books on ADHD in relationships. And if you're, if you're in a relationship, I actually like, especially a long-term stable relationship, I actually think it's really useful to talk to your partner and educate them a little bit about it. Because I, I do think they really, um, people, if they don't understand 
ADHD will take things personally and they, and they, they take your lack of follow through as a sign or a meaning of a lack of interest in them, a lack of commitment to the relationship, um, or, or I don't know, you're not going to be a good partner, a good, good parent someday. Um, and so, uh, just whether you verbally kind of talk through it or share a book with them, I actually think it's very helpful. And I've, I've had clients do this, their partners, once they kind of understand, they're like, oh, you always do that. I never understood why. And, uh, you know, when they understand that it's a little bit more, um, driven by a condition or at least a tendency, if you, maybe that's a, a better way of kind of putting it, that's non-pathologizing. I think it makes, uh, your partner a lot more em empathic and understanding. So I think just communicating that, um, I think can be helpful. Uh, I know sometimes it can be tough to talk to people about that, particularly, unfortunately, I don't know, there's always stigma around ADHD or any sort of condition. So uh, whether you use that term or you can say, or whatever, I have a predisposition to be just very inattentive, um, you know, uh, you can communicate it how you want, but I do think it's helpful to sort of communicate uh, these things and, and kind of work them out. Um, so I, that's the biggest thing I would say is in, in the context of relationships, uh, it's really important for your partner to understand where you're coming from, your strengths and weaknesses, um, and, and uh, you know, like be able to talk through those things. Um, it doesn't mean that people with ADHD can't have successful relationships. There's tons of people who have great long-term partnerships, but they does have to be managed a little bit differently because conscientiousness is a very important factor, not just for professional success, but for relationship success. And that is an impairment, quite frankly, um, in ADHD. And so there has to be um, frameworks, as you said, or kind of behavioral uh, strategies in order to compensate for it, right? So um, I'm curious, um, since you asked the question, what frameworks have you found helpful for you so far? And and what's the area that you think is most lacking or, or you, you need the most help with? Yeah, so frameworks is just kind of like focusing um, on you know, the objective, like being organized is like the biggest thing. Like in the past, I, I haven't been super organized. I kind of right. just go on the fly and remember through, you know, just like writing down on a piece of paper. That's been like extremely like doing to do lists is super helpful. Mm -hmm. Having a schedule, like all that is super important. And I do that through like Rome and Rome research is a great platform right. um, where you can like search your notes and stuff like that. It kind of like goes with how I think of things, but, mm -hmm. um, like the problem in the past is just kind of like, you know, filling up your to-do list with so many things that you can't get it done. And, um, you know, focusing on saying, no, I think my problem is just like, you get so excited about things that right. you want to take on the world. But in reality, it's like, okay to say no, but it's, it's really hard. And then sometimes figuring out the problem, like, what is the most important problem, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of figuring that out and then tackling it. Sometimes I just want, you know, just get to the solution right away. Um, and um, I've learned through like, you know, friends and family and colleagues, like they've helped me through that. Mm -hmm. And um, just being aware of like, you know, I need to like break the problem down. And that helps with the ADHD, I think, breaking down problems. But um, I would love to hear other people too, like, you know, and get their perspectives as well because i'm always trying to learn yeah it's a great point and I, i'm glad you share that by the way in terms of writing helping you prioritization helping you so it, it, i always like to take what has worked with people because i think generally what works in the past is more likely to work in the future um and, it, and it's a good indication of, of of something that you can kind of tailor or personalize to you so um 
now that you've talked about it, what I would actually suggest is if you haven't already read this article that I wrote called The Keystone Habit, I highly recommend it. I'll actually post it in the, the Discord afterwards. Basically, with every single one of my, my clients that are on the ADHD or inattentiveness spectrum, I have them read it and I have them implement it. For the, for the folks that are naturally conscientious, they don't need to do it because they basically do kind of a version of it anyway. Um, or they have, quite frankly, such a good working memory that they don't need to. But I would say for the majority of people, myself included, uh, I find it tremendously helpful. Um, so, uh, and if you are a person, and the, specific, the reason I specifically recommend it for you is because you mentioned that you that writing has been helpful. So um, the reason I think it will be especially helpful is it's a, a little quick four minute exercise, which is just at the beginning of the day, you sit down for four minutes and you write about what am I gonna do for the next four hours, right? Just for the next four hours. So basically it's like, what am I gonna do this morning? Um, and then at, you know, so you do this at let's say eight in the morning, right? Spend four minutes about what am I gonna do from 8 a.m. to noon? And then at noon, you do another one and you just go back for the first two minutes and you say, did I accomplish what I said I was going to do? If not, what distracted me? Maybe I got shiny object syndrome to, you, to your point. I got excited about something and then I got distracted, which is you know understandable. How do I prevent that from happening again, right? Okay, it's like, well, maybe me sitting at home is not a great idea. Maybe I should go work at Starbucks uh, just to get a different change of scenery. I'm not gonna repeat the same thing and bash my head against the wall uh, if it's not working for me. Now, from 12 to four this afternoon, what am I gonna do for the next four hours? I'm gonna go sit in Starbucks, I'm gonna try again. And then as part of that, you prioritize too, which is like, okay, I got four hours. What am, what, what's the best use of my time? Let me come up with one to three things for me to do this afternoon. And then you do this one final time in the evening. Okay, now it's four o'clock that I do what I said I was gonna do. And what's, what am I gonna do for the rest of the evening? So you do this three times a day, morning, afternoon, evening. And then you do a summary one at the end of the day where you go back and read the three that you wrote earlier and reflect on how was your day and what am I going to do differently tomorrow. So in total, it takes 27 minutes if you do 4, 4, 4, and 15, uh, 12 plus 15, 27 minutes. Uh, is phenomenal though in terms of the ROI that you get from spending uh, you know, four minutes at a time, 27 minutes a day um, in terms of organizing your life because the reason it's really helpful particularly with folks with ADHD, is it helps you get back on track faster. It's so easy when you're inattentive and you're, you're, you're now, and this is the thing with ADHD. If you think about the underlying basis for ADHD is you're kind of understimulated on a neurological level. And so you're driven to distraction, which is a great book, by the way, on ADHD, because you're almost trying to achieve this optimal level of arousal. And that's why People with ADHD can't stand doing boring tasks because they're already low in arousal. They're under aroused. And so they're almost seeking, chasing the thing that will give them the arousal the, the, that they, that they uh, need. That's why people with ADHD have no problem paying attention with things that they are passionate about, uh, playing video games, uh, uh, watching movies, things that are very engaging. They can totally focus. It's not an impairment of focus. It's an impairment of focus on things that are uninteresting, right? That's the genesis of ADHD. And so the solution to that is A, uh, maybe people with ADHD probably would benefit from, from doing things they're a little bit more passionate about more than other people, um, but not totally. The other part of it is structure though. And the Keystone Habit just notices that instead of wasting a whole day, uh, I, I, I got totally thrown off by procrastination, internet, et cetera, or chasing this shiny new object or project. Okay, I, great, I wasted four hours or one hour uh, and I'm going to get back on track faster because I basically have these check-in points, 
right? Where if you think about it, ADHD, it's in some ways it's easier to hyper-focus than with other folks. So you almost have the blinders on and you're kind of like deeply immersed in whatever it is that your attention's placed on. And you're not sitting there thinking, is this the right thing for me to focus on? So by stepping back for four minutes, a couple times throughout the day, you step back and say, am I focusing on the right thing? Is this really the highest priority? Is this, is this helpful? Am I, am I heading to where I, I need to be heading? Um, it'll help you get back on track faster and also correct the things that are not working for you. So the other thing I would say too about ADHD is, look, all these internal things, all these behavioral mechanisms, they are really critical. Look, you, you're ultimately responsible for your own life. But the other thing that's going to really help you is finding the right environment. So I give you a micro example of that, which is maybe for someone who's ADHD, working at home alone is not a great idea by yourself all day. Generally, it's not for most people, especially with folks with ADHD. You might need to be in a busy coffee house and be around other people. It's probably better for you to work in an office setting, quite frankly, um, if you have ADHD. So you got to learn those lessons and also find what's the type of job that's really good for you. Like people with ADHD uh, thrive more in startups because it's chaotic and they like the the, the, the crazy randomness and the uh, uh, the energy. They, they get bored much easier at bigger companies. And so you the part of the solution is uh, self-management, like I've been talking about with the Keystone Habit. Part of it is you got to kind of find the environment that, quite frankly, is suited for you and you're more likely to thrive in because um, there's, there's just kind of like a, a fit uh, kind of thing that you have to figure out that's better for you. That's why a lot of people with ADHD become founders, right? They, they're, quite frankly, unemployable elsewhere. The challenge, though, is, is the same thing with the relationship. As the company scales and um, you know they need to be really organized, they have a terrible time with that. And so they need to really bring in other people who are much more organized, conscientious, operational to help them execute on the vision um, because uh, uh, they can't sort of do it themselves. So that's why fixing your environment will, will be just as important as fixing your habits and the behavioral. And you need to do both of those together. Thank you so much. You're dropping gems. So I, I can't wait uh, until you guys post this on YouTube. Um, thank you. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to post the, the article for you to read. Uh, try it out. Um, if you want some accountability, by the way, we, we do have accountability squad. So I'm going to shamelessly plug that. Um, and uh, yeah, like you can make it your goal, basically. Like I'm going to write a keystone habit, at least one every single day for the next week. Um, and if you want some accountability, uh, join the accountability group and tell people like that's my goal. Um, and give me shit if I don't do it. Um, and that'll be a good motivator for, for you to uh, try to hit a streak of doing it five, seven days in a row. Um, so that's the other part too, is use reinforcement. Uh, it helps a lot with uh, instituting and keeping any habit. And that's why we have these. So I uh, highly recommend that as a way of implementing the Keystone habit. Um, and I find most people, once they get into the habit, whether it's writing or typing it, um, it becomes part of their like, oh, this is what I do as part of my morning routine. Um, and I have clients who've been doing it for, for months, if not years at this point, And they talk about how incredibly helpful it is. So try it out. And like I said to the other, other caller, um, feel free to call back in, in in a couple of weeks and let me know how it's going. Um, but thank you so much for everyone who joined us on Instagram. Uh, thank you everyone who joined us on YouTube Live. Thanks for all of our Discord members. Uh, you guys are, are, are the heart of our community. Um, and we'll uh, re, uh, join the channel, by the way, if you want to uh, chat afterwards. Um, I'll type in some of the links um, in terms of the articles and books that I mentioned on today's show. Um, and thanks to everyone on uh, Clubhouse as well. Got a, I got a few followers there. So thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. We'll be back next Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Um, 
you can feel free to submit your questions ahead of time, but if you call in and talk through it with me, it's always uh, more fun and I can always be more helpful. So thanks. Have an excellent week and have a great start to your spring.